Hello, my name is Rosemary Milsom and I'm the director of the Newcastle Writers' Festival. For many of us, Kerry O'Brien was Mr ABC. In this session, which was recorded at the 2019 festival, he speaks to Paul Bevan about his stellar career and reflects on the social and political upheavals he has witnessed. You'll know Kerry O'Brien most recently as presenter of Four Corners, the occasional election night special, and for 15 years, anchoring and interviewing on the ABC's 7.30 report. But there are too many reporting roads that he hasn't travelled. He's reported straight news, daily and long-form current affairs. He's made documentaries. He's reported politics. He's been a foreign correspondent. He's written for newspapers and a wire service. He's worked for every commercial television network, but he's most passionate about public broadcasting. And he says he's had reasonable success in all of those fields. He's the, uh, the author of the best-selling book, Keating, and now, fortunately for us, he's published a memoir, enigmatically, enigmatically titled Kerry O'Brien, A Memoir. You can buy it at the bookshop, uh, and that's on the lower ground floor of this building, and Kerry will be signing books after this session. So please welcome Kerry O'Brien. Thanks, Paul. You'll also notice we have translators here, that is Neil and Nat. They are interpreting for you this afternoon, which is the first time, I think, for both you and me, Kerry, that we've had interpreters. No, no, but uh, there have been times in my life when I needed them. <laughs> Welcome back to Newcastle. Newcastle, you're no stranger to Newcastle. In fact, you lived here. I did. Uh, a very long time. I was here for five weeks. Um, I was desperate. Uh, I'd started in journalism late. I was 20 when I started. I'd been wandering aimlessly around various public service jobs in Brisbane up to that point and stumbled into it. And uh, it was, you know, obviously the light went on and I took off. And um, uh, I was desperate to get out of Brisbane. It was 22 until I chalked up a couple of years and felt I actually could go around and see if people might be interested in having me. And, and I'd gone to Melbourne and Sydney seeing various news organisations and introducing myself uh, you know, tugging, tugging editors' coattails and saying, look at me. Um, but was on my way back to Brisbane, having failed, I thought, and uh, heard that there was a job going at NBN and stuck my head in there and they hired me. So um, I took the job, but I was only in it for two and a half weeks when another job where I'd gone, into, gone looking in Sydney, they rang and said that they had, A, they had a job, and B, it was at a higher grade. And it was the combination of the two things I went in and resigned. But you were here graciously, for... graciously agreed to stay on an extra two and a half weeks. Um, Incidentally, we shared a colleague through Murray Finlay, who, Murray. Was, uh, who was there and uh, ultimately went on to be the manager of ABC News. Murray, Murray was the newsreader, and a very good one. And not long after I came and went, he actually, I think, became the news director as well. But the great thing about it, I mean, I, I actually was, look, I was so dead keen to get to Sydney that I just couldn't resist it. But, but uh, I'd already worked out two things. One, it was an enormous opportunity here because they were, they were just feeding stories to me. And every day I was doing good stories. And, uh, and it would have been a fantastic experience to have stayed here. The second thing... Uh, I very quickly discovered is that Newcastle was a party town. Yeah. 
And um, I'm not sure that that would have been so good for me because, um, because I was partying hard in the period that I was here, so much so. Uh, one of my jobs was to start early. In the morning, I'd come on at 5.30, quickly write off a few brief stories stolen from the Newcastle Herald um, because the Lamb family who owned NBN also had the radio station, or a radio station, and so there was a little little booth in the television newsroom and I would go and sit in there with my rewrites and do a five-minute news bulletin into the radio show. Just, it was all hooked up. Except one morning I arrived straight from a party, um, just put my head on the desk for a minute and immediately went to sleep. Fortunately, my head was quite close by the phone. So when it rang right on six o'clock, as I was supposed to be saying good morning uh, on the radio station, the phone rang and said, what are you doing? <laughs> and so in, instead of, I had no time to actually dash, so I slipped into this tiny booth, which was no bigger than a telephone booth, with the broadsheet, Newcastle Herald, and was just randomly picking stories, reading them, and you did, <laughs> and you did. So I'd open it to the next page and go on to the next story. So I'm not, I'm not sure how long I would have lasted, actually. You also came to Newcastle for another pivotal part of your life, which was when you won the Gold Walkley. The Walkley Awards that year happened to be in Newcastle. Yeah. You and your wife, Sue, ended up uh, the next... There's a lot of next morning alcohol-related stories in this book. You and your wife, Sue, the next morning were drinking champagne on Redhead Beach. Well, it was a good night. <laughs> um, I mean, uh, uh, television hadn't long been um, uh, given entree to the Walkley Awards, which were traditionally a newspaper award. And so it was only open to television journalists uh, for about four years. And I won the category for current affairs television from Channel 7, actually. And uh, it was for a 90-minute documentary on chemical hazards. And, uh, and then on the night, they, they uh, I mean, A, you don't know you've won the award, but you most certainly don't know that you're even in the running, let alone win the Gold Walkley, which is like the ultimate prize. So it was, it was a, it, because it was such a surprise, I had absolutely no expectation of it. It was a really sort of notable moment in my life and we did have some, we did go and grab a bottle of French champagne that night, but we didn't finish it. Uh, we finished it on Redhead Beach the next morning on our way. French champagne and hot chips. <laughs> Interesting the things you remember. You interviewed the feminist Betty Friedan and she talked about ageing in your conversation. And she said, old age sounds like some terminal state, but it's not. You become more and more authentically yourself. You now are who you are. You become a truth teller. Is that, is that what's going on here? Are you becoming a truth teller? I hope so. I hope so. Because, um, look, the, probably... The, I had always put off the idea of doing a memoir, but when I wrote the Keating book, that gave me a kind of entree to understanding what it would be like taking on uh, a seriously um, intended book. And, uh, and because the Keating book was mostly his words, I mean, I suppose 25% was me and 75% was him, possibly even more. So although that was a challenge as a book because it was such a different book, Nonetheless, it gave me a great insight to writing a book without having to suffer my way through every word between the covers. That was the first thing. But the second thing was that, uh, that I've become enormously conscious 
uh, and still shake my head at our capacity to forget our history. And, uh, and I thought, given that my life, the whole of my life, has neatly spanned the whole post-war period, which has really been a vital, extraordinary period in history, when you look at it, the nuclear age, the, the uh, digital age, the digital revolution, which actually began in the war. That was when the first computers really emerged. And, uh, and, and, and having been, uh, if you like, a witness to a great deal of that history as a journalist, particularly with the kind of roles that I've had over the years and the opportunities, I thought it would be a very useful exercise to reflect on that history and to actually take really important milestones in Australia's history particularly and, uh, and endeavour to, to look back at them, remember the, the experiences I had and the impacts they had on me at the time and the kind of anecdotal side of the reporting of them, but also marrying that with what we now know about those moments in history, which, for instance, with the sacking of Whitlam in 75, we now know vastly more than we knew then. But Jenny Hocking, who has written terrific work uh, uncovering really quite vital information in our understanding of that pivotal moment in our history where democracy was seriously threatened, uh, we now know uh, how deeply compromised Sir John Kerr was and how he had begun to contemplate that possibility long before there ever became the remotest rationale for it. You uh, actually describe it as a plot to commit treason. Well, I say, I say it is arguably treason, yes, absolutely. I mean, Sir Anthony Mason, who was a High Court judge, he later became the Chief Justice, but as a High Court judge, he was having secret meetings um, with John Kerr uh, months before the dismissal. There was, no, there was no loans affair crisis. There was no alleged constitutional crisis uh, around supply. There was no hint of that. But here was Kerr canvassing the possibilities of having to exercise this alleged power to dismiss a prime, an elected Prime Minister with control of the People's House months, secretly, months before. Now, the thing about Jenny Hocking's book is that it sold 5,000 copies. Yes, it was reported in the papers, but then it was gone and it sold 5,000 copies. Now, I think more than 5,000 people should understand that part of our history. And so, so I've taken the opportunity to give a very condensed version of that in the book. How easily, and I've taken that approach with a whole lot of other things. How easily does that come to you? Normally, as an interviewer, you're deliberately staying out of personal opinion. You're fostering personal opinion in others. And mm. now suddenly you're swapping hats to the person who's going, I think this, yeah. and I think you should know this. Yeah. How easily does that come to you? Came quite easily. <laughs> Came with a certain amount of relief too. But um, well, I, I was no longer—I was no longer having to tread the line that I did tread at the APC. And just—and something that I will absolutely have no trouble acknowledging. I mean, I went to work for Gough Whitlam for Christ's sake. I worked for Lionel Bowen, who later became a deputy prime minister, a deputy Labor prime minister. You can draw certain conclusions about that. But when I went back to journalism, I walked the straight line that, as far as I'm concerned, was my absolute responsibility to walk in my work. 
And uh, I had no trouble justifying that when I went back to the ABC. I mean, I, I laundered myself back into the trade via Channel 7, which was how I came to do that chemical um, hazards program. But I was doing that because the ABC wouldn't have me back because they had a Liberal government and didn't like... They were, they were somewhat in, timid of the possibility that this might be a mark against them, despite the fact that they had people who had worked for Liberals and Nationals back in the fold. And in fact, when, when some of our, some of the ABC's enemies who've, have delighted in drawing up a list of seven or eight people that they point out, like me, who had at some point in the past worked for Labor politicians, as a press secretary might add, not a policy maker, um, uh, or had gone on to work for politicians or even become politicians. And, uh, and when a man named Tom Switzer, who is on the right, and who had tried to build a case for the privatisation of the ABC, and he, he proffered the fact that eight people had once worked for Labor politicians, or like Maxine McHugh had gone on to become them. In the space of about five minutes, when I saw this as I was writing the book, I drummed up nearly twice as many who'd done it for the other side. Now, I don't have a problem with either, provided, and I'm very happy to accept a, a heightened scrutiny, if you like, because you might have that kind of political connected background. But but as long as anybody coming from a political role comes back into their journalistic job and walks a straight line with their journalism, that is fine by me. And, and I gave examples in the book of journalists who worked for the ABC, there are, there are two at least, who went from uh, some of the most senior political reporting jobs at the ABC to work for Liberal Prime Ministers. Uh, but they, their reporting for the ABC had been absolutely straight. Tom Switzer, on the other hand, as you say, is unequivocally from the right and now has, I believe he still has, certainly has had, a job at the ABC where he interviews his friends, such as Tony Abbott. Is that fair enough or is that going too far? We're bending I'm, over backwards. Uh, I mean, the, the thing about the right-wing Philip Adams, it's, um, <laughs> uh, I mean, I don't have a problem with that. I don't have a problem with that. I mean, Philip makes no secret about his... Uh, and p kind of political views and and argues them, which is a very different approach to any to appro the approach I took. Um, and if uh, and if that is the perception of Philip, then I don't have a problem with somebody on the right doing something. But I'd like them to be as good as him. Uh -huh. I haven't seen one yet. I've seen some pretty ordinary ones. And the, part of the reason there's there are problems hiring them is finding somebody who's actually up to the job. Let's go back in time a bit. Last night at the festival launch, Ben Quilty uh, was one of the guests and he talked about the profound effect of being beaten by a particular teacher at school ah. that that had had on his life and then the anxiety that he felt when his son was going to school to be protective of him to ensure that nothing as horrific happened to him. Yeah. Can you tell us about Dan Mooney? Ah. Uh, well, I went to a Christian brother's school. I was a Catholic. My family were quite... Um, quite devout Catholics. Um, my father had gone to a Christian brother school in Brisbane, so I went to a Christian brother school. They were different schools and we had different stories. Um, and my older brother had gone away to become a Christian brother the day after he turned 14. He had left the family in Warwick the day after his 14th birthday to become a Christian brother and to study for six years at Strathfield Training College in Sydney. 
So the church and the order felt that at the age of 14 he could make a decision that was going to affect the rest of his life to be celibate, etc., um, etc. Et he didn't even know whether he was going to be a good teacher or not. But, uh, but I kind of, my story was a little different. I, I was a kind of, I put a mark on my own back, I think, when I joined the brothers in Brisbane in grade four and, uh, and they suffered me and I, I suppose, well, we didn't really suffer each other for nine years. Brother Mooney came at the tail end. He was there for my last four years at the school. But every year through that school, I'd had, I guess, a lot of, I won't call them beatings, but it, we used to call them the cuts. So they would have this leather strap, and it was years later that I discovered that the leather, and, and there was heavy stitching on the, scrap, uh, on the strap, and it was heavy leather. What I didn't discover until later was that there were two, there were, there were layers of leather, and in between the layers of leather, there was a thin band of steel between each layer. Uh, and there was one particular brother who, who, I mean, they all had their different techniques, but this guy had a summer technique and a winter technique. And the summer technique... Uh, was that he would stand, he would get you to stand directly in front of you and you had to hold your hand out in front of you like that and he would, as he brought the strap down, he would, he would place it in such a way that the top of the strap would actually hit your wrist and so you'd have this big welt uh, across your wrist uh, for hours afterwards. Uh, and, and of course where the hand is somewhat weathered even in a kid, the wrist is, is more vulnerable, which he knew. And in winter, he would get you to hold your hand, he would stand on the side of you, you'd hold your hand out like that, and he would hold it in one hand and he would put the, bring the strap down across the tops of your fingers. And of course your hands were cold. So you'd go back to your desk with your hands absolutely stinging for about half an hour. So, you know, you can really argue that it's kind of, it's not just using the strap as a reminder of who's got the power and you better get back on the job. It was actually sadistic. You and didn't brother, realize. Brother, sorry, I'm very, I'll get to your question, yeah. but Brother Mooney, was a big guy, and uh, not to put too fine a point on it, he wasn't very bright. Uh, I later found from one of the other brothers that he took 22 years to get his BA. Um, and, uh, but he was a bully, serious bully, and he didn't like me. I can't remember why, really. Maybe I earned it, but, but um, we had four years of, of his systematic attempts to beat me down. You didn't realise the effect on you until Julia Zemiro and the, uh, the program that she took you on going back to that school. Yeah. What was that like? Well, I, I, I'd, I'd had some kind of thought in my own mind in particular moments in my life. Uh, I did have a temper, you know, I do have a temper, uh, which I've done everything in my power to control because it's probably the side of me that I like least. Um, it's, not a, it's not an overwhelming temper, but, but at times will come out and then it goes. Now, whether that relates back to my childhood or not, I don't know, but, but there have been moments when I've wondered. But I've really just basically got on with things. And I've known schoolmates we've, where we've met again over years and they've talked about how appalling it was for them. And I'm thinking, Christ, I was the one they were beating. You guys, you guys got it easy. Uh, but I'd kind of just got on with my life. But then when Julia was taking me back through it and I, they took me over to the monastery uh, where I'd had various altercations and where I was eventually expelled six weeks before I was due to do my what is now year 12 and, uh, and then allowed back into the school for private study after my father tapped on the shoulder. But, but um, 
it, it actually did bring it back in a big way, and I actually, I do think I was damaged. You've talked about how things have changed in your journalistic career. When you started in journalism, you did Vox Pop, so the, uh, the conversations on the street you have with random people, about Ronald Ryan's hanging, which was happened. So there, we're going way back to, what, 1969? You were doing Voxies on... Uh, oh, no, 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 no. That was earlier than that, mate. That was, um, that was uh, 60... It was either 66 or 67. I heard a 65 over, no, it was, over no, I think here. It might have been 66. <gasps> yeah. 66. Yeah. Anyway, so you were, look, it was, you, it was, it was, it, we here were we were still, in Brisbane. We were still hanging people at the time that you started. Well, Victorians that. were. You know what? Queensland had banned it 50 years before. It was um, given some of the other um, elements of life in Queensland. That one, that one, that's one we can claim. Mm. Um, so, but I was standing, I was standing with a camera with a big clock in a shop in the main street of Brisbane on the moment, and in the moment that Ronald Ryan hanged and talking to people. I'm just getting an impression of how much things have changed. So yes. you're doing voxies as Ronald Ryan is hanged. You're, you then move to Sydney after Newcastle, you go to Sydney. And uh, one of your flatmates, Michael Birch, can you tell us the story of my, how Michael Birch died? But he wasn't. A, he wasn't a flatmate. Uh, you, there was a, there was was a, a flatmate of, of mine who was killed by a Sydney crim. But um, that was Brian Bowman. No, Mike. Well, Mike Birch. It's Brian Bowman's story that I'm after. Ah, it's okay. Yep, yep. Okay, Brian. Brian Bowman was an old schoolmate. Well, he was a young schoolmate then. Uh, and I'd, I'd come to Sydney and was flatting with these two school friends. Uh, and Brian was a waiter in uh, at the Eastern Suburbs Leagues Club, and he'd met this. He called her a girl, but uh, she was well and truly a mature woman. He was 21, she was 37, uh, and it was an infatuation. He was a waiter. She'd met him there. It, it unfolded that she was a baccarat dealer in the cross, and she had just dropped a boyfriend uh, who we're told was, uh, was a bit, bit of a heavy, and he had threatened her that if she didn't drop Brian, he would beat him up. And uh, Brian had told us this story, and, and we said, well... Mate, are you taking that seriously? He said, He said, well, if it happens, I'll just get someone to beat him up. And Brian wouldn't have had the first idea of who to go to, where to go, or, you know, anyway. Um, only about two weeks after that, we were at a small party at her apartment in Brighton La Sands in Sydney for New Year's Eve, and we left, this other friend of mine and I left, and we, we were actually driving up to Newcastle the next day. I was coming up here to meet a then-girlfriend. And we heard on the radio that Brian had been shot and killed with glory in their bed by this guy named John Warren. So this used to happen. This is the, this is the, uh, the underworld this is the Sydney of Sydney. At that time. This is Sydney at that he time. Was, he was also running a small uh, illegal... She was at Perscalia's illegal casino, and he was running his own small casino... It subsequently emerged that he had shot and killed another notorious Sydney crim, uh, somebody O'Reilly, uh, as he climbed out of his Maserati in Double Bay, and Glory McGlynn had been hiding behind the tree across the road as he did it. So and these things have changed in your time. The, the illegal casinos probably have the things, The things to do with attitudes to women, indigenous attitudes, homosexuality, yeah. mental health... It's all changed gender, so much. Gender politics, um, the sexual, you know, the, the feminist revolution, the second wave revolution, uh, the pill, 
so many things. Consequently, do you think uh, you... You know what hasn't changed? What? Our propensity to go to war. Yes. We'll come, we'll come back to that, particularly John Howard and the Iraq War. But uh, do you feel that the generation of journalists of which you are a part is of a generation that does not take those things for granted? And where does that leave journalists today who are kind of living in a post-that-change world? Well, one thing I have learned uh, is that even those things that come that do not come easily, the gains that are made uh, in our lives and in our societies and our communities uh, can never be taken for granted. Uh, I mean, our, our social history really is one of sometimes two steps forward and one step back and one step forward and two steps back. And uh, I mean, just follow the abortion debate as a, for instance, uh, abortion is still illegal in New South Wales, I think. Um, and, and, and the system, the system found other ways to deal with the abortion issue um, because politicians apparently in some states have not been able to have a proper discussion about that and come to proper conclusions as a democratic process. But um, the, the history of, of black-white relations in Australia is another illustration of that where we sometimes we have moments where we seem to make giant strides and then we can't even bring ourselves to say sorry. Um, you know, we can have one government that wants to go, that, that, that takes the country down a certain path, and then you have another government, another leader, that brings, the, brings us back again. Um, so that as we sit here, we can make no assumptions about the permanence of same-sex marriage. You might think we can, but you can't. Times change, people change. Uh, politicians change, and they have. I think the whole political process has become seriously corrupted. So is that a challenge for younger journalists of to course go, it is. do not take these things for granted? I have yeah. seen them change and change back. Well, that's why I've done the bloody book, yeah. because, uh, because... He's signing copies of the book in the bookshop. After no, the I, uh, <laughs> I mean, it's, it staggers me still how easily we forget. And, you know, one of the most common reactions I've had uh, from people who, having written the book, have then written to me, and they've talked about about remembering, being surprised at the things they've remembered, but they had forgotten, and a number of them important things. And so you've got young journalists who who haven't necessarily read the political history, who are sitting in the bureau in Canberra, sitting in the in the gallery in Canberra, reporting politics without a complete picture of the past history. Uh, and they, they often do not have the old hands that I had around that I could, whose brains I could pick, which I did remorselessly. I mean, I had mentors out there that I could, they, they weren't volunteering. I was, some of them didn't even realise they were mentors. I was just studying the way they went about things and reading their stuff or watching them interview on television or whatever. Um, those opportunities are not there now because, or they are much more rare, because most newsrooms in Australia, across the whole range of media, uh, the average age is so much younger than it was even 10 years ago, let alone 20 or 30. Because, of course, the older journalists who have the more experience are also the more expensive. So when the redundancies come in, it is an attractive proposition for the accountants in these heavily uh, pressured news organisations whose old commercial models have collapsed under their feet 
They're much happier to see the old hands go than the cheaper younger ones. And so what you're left with is young newsrooms with a certain level of naivety that is not checked by those older ones with the experience. That's just one of the ways in which journalism has suffered. And if journalism has suffered and that impacts on its output, then we're all suffering. We are less well informed than we were. And that's, a, that's partly, I think, a reason why fake news is so hard to counter. Because people are reading stuff which is just palpably false, but they don't have the mental frame of reference, the historic frame of reference, uh, to know that it's wrong. I mean, we could, just, we could spend a bloody hour talking just about this, Paul, and, and, and I know you won't, but, but um, uh, the, the, the not the nature of journalism, but the way journalism is practised today is dramatically different to the way I learnt and the way I practised it. The nature of the way politics is practised today is dramatically different to the way politics was practised in my earlier years. And it's not to the good. Definitely not to the good. We might come back to looking at the future uh, further into our conversation, but let's go back again. Can we go, hear some stories, some of the people you've interviewed, some of the situations you've found yourself in. Uh, would you mind taking us back to the coup in the Philippines? This is, you were there, yeah. Marcos is on his way out. Was this the nearest you came to physical danger? There was actually a bullet, wasn't yeah. there? Uh, well, it probably was. Uh, um, I once foolishly, um, uh, also in the Philippines ten years before, I'd, I'd, I'd tried to establish contact with the Muslim rebels in the hills uh, on an island called Mindanao. I'd gone there for Four Corners to report on a, uh, a tsunami in which 8,000 people had died, and we did that story. But while I was there, I also learned about this, this war that was going on on the island and also saw close up the impact of Marcos's state of emergency and, and his appalling uh, personal brand of despotism. Uh, and so I stayed on and did two more stories. And I tried to do, well, I did do this story about the, the so, but I, I'd struck a local priest who actually made contact with this guerrilla chief and I was going to go up and meet him in the hills. And the way I was going to do it and get past all these Filipino checkpoints was by sitting on a horse and being led by this priest's guide. And the soldiers in those areas knew the guide was um, worked for the local priest, the missionary. And so the assumption was that if I went with him and gave liberal blessings to the soldiers as we passed the checkpoints, that he'd just assume I was a, uh, a Catholic priest who couldn't speak English, uh, couldn't speak Filipino. And so I actually went up in the hills and sat fruitlessly by a mountain stream for about three hours before I realised the gorilla chief had changed his mind and then I meandered back down the bloody thing. That was a really silly thing to do. So the ten years later, we were outside. I was back with Four Corners and, uh, and we'd done a story on the election campaign which, which Marcos had attempted to rig and not got away with it. The coup had occurred. We're still in train when we went back to do it. And, uh, and on the night when the coup came to a head and the game was over for Marcos and we were walking up the side of the palace, this is my cameraman, sound recorders to myself, uh, in this darkened street and we could hear, the, hear a helicopter start up on the other side and it was Marcos and Imelda climbing into the American, to the helicopter the Americans had supplied to get him out and that was actually taking off as we paused on the street outside to take some, to record the fact that that was happening. And uh, 
and we, we came up to the gates of the palace where rival camps uh, were gathering and we'd, we'd been tipped off that the coup leaders and their soldiers were marching on the palace, which was my Marcos was fleeing. And inside the palace gates, there was a tank with the gun barrel pointing out, which looked a bit ominous. And then there were the, these Marcos... Some French journalist stood in front of that tank and did his piece to camera right in front of yeah. the gun. Crazy. So some, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and then the, the, after Marcos had gone and, the, and, and all these, these poor idiots who, were, who thought they were still defending their beloved president, armed with bricks and stones and knives, uh, and they're standing there and then some shots ring out from inside the palace and uh, bullets start flying around. So we beat a hasty retreat and we were behind... We, we took refuge behind a house that was on the edge of the square outside the palace. And uh, we, were, we were underneath this, this window, this shuttered window. And I'll never forget it. I heard a noise above my head and I looked up just as this, this, this army boot came through the shutters and then the, the guns came out through the shutters and Marcos's um, supporters were running down the street throwing rocks and all the rest of it. And, uh, and we just ran from underneath the guns and took refuge behind a jeep on the far wall of this parking area. And, uh, and there was the aerial of the jeep uh, and there was a twang and, that, and, and the sound of the bullet hitting the rock and the aerial was about that far from my head. So in the moment, you don't, you don't go, oh, shit, I should be afraid here. Um, you just think, oh, that's interesting. Mm. And, then, and then a rock lands near you from the goons and you, you, know, you sort of try and burrow down even more behind the thing. But when those things happen in, in, in that kind of rush, when they happen in the moment, you don't really have time to reflect on them. There and later the only reflection you make is, well, I got out of that one. Well, you reflect on it when you come to write your memoirs. The, the, there are so many interviews that I would love to talk to you about. There's very, very briefly, can you give us an insight into Malcolm Fraser, your first encounter with Malcolm Fraser? Oh, my God. You, kid, you basically kidnapped him. <laughs> that, well, I was working for TDT in Melbourne, this day and night in Melbourne. That was, 70, that was, um, that was say, around March 75. And, uh, and he had announced that day that he was going to challenge Billy Snedden for the leadership. And, uh, and he was in Melbourne, the parliament wasn't sitting, and Richard Carlton, who was our political interviewer, flew to Melbourne and declared that he was going to get Fraser on. But Fraser had other ideas. He, told, he said no to Dick. And so Dick was rather left a little bit with egg on his face, but he, he was assuring us that that was at least nobody else was going to get the interview. And then when a current affair came on, there was Malcolm. So uh, the Channel 9 studios were in Richmond. We were in uh, Rip and Lee. It was about a, maybe by normal standards, a 15-minute drive. And I jumped in, the, in, a, in one of our camera cars, which was a Valiant um, station wagon with rattly wires to keep the camera gear from hitting you in the back of the head as you drove along. Uh, with one of our researchers, and we uh, raced across town to Channel 9. Because it was night time, their guard was down. They didn't have anyone on the front desk, so we just walked in. 
and he was actually still in the studio with a guy named Michael Schulberger, who had replaced Mike Willisie as the interviewer. We found the studio door with the red light flashing, and you could see through the window that the interview was still going on. As it finished, we just opened the door and walked in. And Michael, um, they'd gone to a, uh, an ad break, and Michael was sitting there preparing for his next thing, and Fraser had got up and was leaving the set. And Michael, I, I, never, I never talked to him about what he was thinking as he saw us in there. But uh, it was like coming, it was like, you know, making a raid on a rival camp and making off with their... <laughs> so we had this very hasty conversation with Malcolm, uh, and he was reluctant initially, but then he agreed. And he said, but I don't have a car. I said, well, come with us. So he sat, he was a very large man, as you would remember, about six foot six. And so he sat in the back of this valiant camera wagon with his knees up near his chin. And it was wet, it was raining, and I was driving. And uh, we were in a hurry. And, and as we came round a corner and the back of the van sort of lurched out, uh, uh, it lost its traction for a moment and lurched out. And as I straightened it up, this big Easter Island face leant over and he said, well, we're going to make news one way or another tonight. <laughs> You've had a couple of instances of wonderful uh, Malcolm Fraser stories, but I want to move on to some of the big leadership stories. Maggie Thatcher, Nelson Mandela, Mikhail Gorbachev. Uh, obviously, people can buy the book and they can get the complete insight, but Maggie Thatcher, can you talk us through particularly your first interview with her, the... Um, the when she was Prime Minister. When she was Prime Minister. She was visiting Australia. It was and this was one-on-one -on -one in person. The yeah. second one I don't think was in person. Was it, was, it was on the television. Yeah. 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 Um, 88, she was visiting Australia and why, I don't know, but we got the only television interview. I was working with Channel 10 at the time and this was a, for a program, an ill-fated program under Frank Lowy's ownership called uh, Page One. Which I always thought it was a strange name for a television program, but there you go. <laughs> Um, and so we were an hour late while she had her hair done for, the, for her event that night, state dinner or whatever it was. And when she came to the room, it was extraordinary. Her hair it was like it had been set in cement. And you, we, we, all, we sometimes get these strange urges to do something really stupid. And my urge that night was to just reach across and gently tap <laughs> one, one side of her hair and see if it would go <laughs> like that, but I didn't. And uh, it was like, it was the closest I've come to interviewing the Queen, to what I imagine interviewing the Queen would be, because this more so actually, because I think she was even more haughty than you would think the Queen might be. Uh, spoke in the royal plural, um, uh, and, and was clearly so used to dictating the terms of her interviews. And, uh, and I had chosen two, there were no real niceties, but it was a softer, more polite interview than I would have done with any Australian politician. But she still walked out. And uh, there, were, there were two issues, neither of which she liked. One was about the North-South divide that had been created by her economic policies, where the South was, uh, was enjoying prosperity because it was the new economy, it was around financial services and so on, and the old economy in the North, which was manufacturing, was in a state of collapse, and there was real poverty and huge unemployment and all the rest of it. But she was denying it. She was denying the undeniable. Even the conservative newspapers and periodicals of Britain at the time were just laying it out there and she was still denying it. So that didn't go very well. And then we got on to South Africa because she was the only holdout in the Commonwealth heads of government 
forum, Chogham, uh, for economic, imposing economic sanctions on South Africa to get rid of the abhorrence of apartheid, to put economic sanctions on them. And she kept saying, I oppose apartheid, but kept finding excuses not to put sanctions on and kept finding excuses to support this apartheid regime. And one of her favourite comments in support was to, was to illustrate how black South Africans did have democracy because they had leaders too, like the, the Zulu chieftain in the Natal province, Chief Butalazi, who was as brutal an individual as any white person in the country. And he was, uh, in his own way, a lapdog uh, for the white regime. And, uh, and that was inarguable. But she used to, she had this favourite thing, she would quote a particular opinion poll from a newspaper in the province, uh, which was supposed to demonstrate just how popular Butalazi was, except that anybody who'd done any reading on it knew that it was a completely fallacious poll that lacked all credibility. So as soon as she raised that, I pointed that out. And that was the point at which her press secretary began to advance. He had a, a reputation as a bully of the media in Britain. He began to advance. I could see her stirring, so I said to her, I see your press secretary is um, walking towards us. Perhaps he thinks the interview is over, but I do have one last question. And, uh, and she just pulled the microphone off and, uh, and said, I have to go. And, and I walked with her. And we walked in silence uh, for what seemed like five minutes, but it was probably about 10 seconds. And she hissed. She said, you just had to go too far and stormed off. That was the first one. And she, she came back only because she'd brought out her memoir and I did this interview by satellite, the second one. But again, it was the only interview she did to Australia and I've got no bloody idea why she agreed to do it with me, but there you go. It was a very different experience, obviously, with an Australian journalist than she was used to. Well, okay. Well, the, 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 American, uh, the American, the British media went to town. Murdoch's media went after me with a stick you know, I was a sort of drunken yobbo Australian boozy journalist. Uh, but but um, outfits like The Independent and The Guardian took it as an opportunity to have a go at their own. Hmm. They pointed out just how craven and how uh, beaten down the British political media had become under her hands and Bernard Ingram's and, uh, and gave examples, com did comparisons between the kinds of interviews she'd come to expect in Britain where, for instance, uh, she'd be talking and, some, and the interviewer would dare to try to drop a question and she'd say, don't talk to me now, don't interrupt me now, I'm in full stream. And off she went again. So uh, it was interesting, to, and, and yet in Australia there were something like 300 calls protesting about my rudeness to her. And I'm sure that they were triggered not by anything I was doing to her, but by the fact that she'd walked out. And, if she, and, and these people thinking, well, if she's walked out, it must have been really rude. So Australians thought it was rude, the ones who'd rung to protest. And in Britain, they took it as, uh, as the kinds of interviews that really should have been being done there, but weren't. There's also Nelson Mandela and Mikhail Gorbachev, and people can read in the book the insights that specifically pertain to those interviews. But they would have been, those three would have been amongst the greatest, most influential leaders of the latter part of the Certainly century. Certainly the most influential, you know, the term greatest, I mean, biggest impact on history rather than greatest. So what, what did I, you learn about leadership from talking to those three people? 
Well, as, as much as much I, I learned as much, if not more, from the thinking and reflecting and the reading that I had done preparing for the interviews, as much as actually doing the interviews. But uh, but for Mandela, um, actually going to Pretoria and sitting in the living room of the presidential, re the official residence, and he had just moved in there that morning. This was late in 94 and only a few months earlier he'd become president in the first democratic election involving all South Africans in its history. And, uh, and as I sat there with the crew and I was looking at all these Vortrekker paintings, you know, the, the, the Vortrekkers, the, the original white Dutch farmers who were, who were like the great, great grandparents of apartheid, uh, they were on the walls, and I was reflecting then on the kinds of awful conversations and decisions that would have been taken in that room as much as anywhere else in the country that would have determined people's lives, that would have determined people being tortured, that would have determined people being killed, that would have determined various ways in which black South Africans were repressed. And, uh, and while I was there, Nelson Mandela was in the next room talking to all of South Africa's uh, police who would have pretty much all been white. And what he was saying to them is, you can come with us. And these guys, many of these guys, would have had blood on their own hands personally. And, uh, and he was saying to them, you can come with us. You can be a part of the new South Africa, but you have to decide now. And if you don't want to be a part of it, that's fine. You go your way. But if you decide to stay and you can't change, then you'll pay for that too. But just the fact that this bloke who'd spent who'd seen so much suffering and who had experienced 27 years of captivity, breaking rocks for much of it, uh, the fact that he could have such a, a capacity to reconcile uh, and to understand the depth of his understanding of what was required to forge a new South Africa where there was space for both black and white to govern together. Uh, was one of the greatest acts of leadership, as far as I'm concerned, of my lifetime. Uh, and I, 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 you know, um, as far, again, as far as I'm concerned, the standout leader of my lifetime. Now, by comparison, Maggie Thatcher, um, uh, I think the thing I learned about Thatcher uh, in particular, and, and, and I think is a notable element of leadership, was her incapacity to acknowledge uh, being wrong about anything. And uh, I think, I suspect that it was a part of, she would never have even entertained the idea that there was any flaw in her, which I think was, again, a part of the failing. And I think it was because she was a woman making her way, not just in a man's world, but in a very stratified male world. Uh, she was the daughter of a shopkeeper. So she had to make her way in the male domain, but also in that very stratified society as well. And so I think she did that by becoming the Iron, the iron Lady and by never, be, never being prepared to admit a mistake. And she cowered her cabinet as she had cowered the media. Uh, nobody really stood up to her ever. Uh, and she was never prepared to admit a mistake. And so she couldn't back down from anything. And that's what drove her out. As well as the as well as the the cost of her policies, she I mean there was, there was not a huge difference between 
the kind of reforms she implemented in Britain and reforms that were imp impl implemented ironically by Labor in Australia, by the Hawke and the Keating governments. But the big difference between the two was that one government turned its back on those who were suffering from those reforms, those who were thrown out of work, those who were on the scrap heap, those who became homeless, those who suffered mental illness, uh, whereas in Australia they attempted to assuage those costs as they introduced the reforms. Uh, so um, Gorbachev, I think um, just the courage of the man and the fact that, and, and it's, it's interesting about what drives a human being to act against his own, or her own, in, in his case, his own best interests in a way, because he saw that it was the right thing to do for his country. And this was Gorbachev driving through Perestroika and Glasnost, the social and political and economic reforms that eventually cost him his rule. And one of the questions I posed to him when I interviewed him was, you could have, you could have been like every other communist leader before you. There you were at the top of the heap. You had all the, all the means in your hands to stay in that job until the day you died. All you had to do was keep feeding the KGB to control them, keep feeding the army to uh, keep them under the thumb, uh, you know, purge your comrades if they started to look like they might be a bit of a threat. But what he did was absolutely put himself on the line because he believed that the only way out of the corner that the Soviet Union had dug itself into in its arms race with the United States, with an economy one quarter of the size of the United States, it was trying to develop a, a bigger arsenal of arms than America. And Ronald Reagan is painted as one of the great presidents of the 20th century. All he did was bloody spend his way through it. Mm. There was nothing inspired about Ronald Reagan's leadership. But, uh, but the Soviet Union was headed for bankruptcy and Gorbachev was trying to turn them around and in the process he was trying to reform communism. And uh, one, of his, one of his decisions was going to mean 800,000 party apparatchiks essentially being thrown out of their power bases. And he knew that all of these things were going to come back at him and he was just sitting on the edge of his seat hoping that he would be able to continue to control the process and in the end he couldn't. And this was all, I was over there with uh, the first, second year of Late Line, we took a team over and were reporting on this as it was happening. Uh, as as the, um, the various member states of the Russian Federation of the, of the Soviet, of the Soviet Union were walking away from it. The, the Soviet Union was collapsing and all was, was left was the individual parts of it and, and at the centre of it was Russia. And, and so uh, this was an amazing time to actually have a, a seat in the front row, if you like. It, it hasn't really worked for any of those three leaders, though. Thatcherism is being wound back. Gorbachev failed in his... Yeah, but Margaret ultimate... doesn't know that. No, she doesn't. And the South Africa is not what Nelson Mandela would want it to be in its no, fullness. But so I, you think where about does that this. leave us? Well, you think about this. Uh, hundreds of years of, of vicious colonialism in South Africa where, where in the end 20 million original black inhabitants of that country um, are utterly denied. Let me just very quickly read you a very brief... Uh, this is Mandela's own words. Um, 
Oh, oh yes, here we go. He, he says, this was, this was the Africa that Mandela himself was born into. It was a world where an African child was born in an African's only hospital, taken home in an African's only bus, lived in an African's only area and attended African's only schools, if he attended school at all. When he, when he grew up, he could hold African's only jobs, rent a house in African's only townships, ride in African's only trains and be stopped at any time of the day or night and be ordered to produce a pass without which he could be arrested and thrown into jail. His life was circumscribed by racist laws and regulations that crippled his growth, dimmed his potential and stunted his life. So you imagine that and the hundreds, hundreds of years of repression and, 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 and institutionalised racism and no vote, no enfranchisement, whatever, uh, living in the worst kind of poverty, being exploited in the grossest way in the mines and, and other places where they actually were allowed to work. Uh, and then almost within the blink of an eye, you've got the first genuine democracy in South Africa. That's not going to suddenly become a, a kind of dream government or a dream example of, of democracy at work. I, everything's guesswork on South Africa and those kinds of stories. I figured it would take at least three generations for them to have a real chance of a working democracy. Now, whether that happens or not, who knows? It's not looking flash at the moment. You mentioned before how things flip-flop and we can't take anything that we think we've achieved for granted. In talking about John Howard's prime, minister, prime ministership, you talk about Port Arthur and the amazing stories of true heroism that emerged and then straight on to the emergence of Pauline Hanson. I was so depressed by that because it's as if the national conversation has not moved on in 26 years. When you add climate change and closing the gap, we could get desperately negative when we have I can a look give at you a few others too. Yes. How have we become so bogged down? What should we do? Failure of leadership. Failure of leadership. You know, for all the disasters of Gough's three years of government, two terms of government in three years, as if three years is enough anyway, um, he was a real leader. Hawke was a real leader. Keating was a real leader. Malcolm Fraser, at some levels, was a real leader. Howard had leadership capacity, but I believe he abused it. And uh, Port Arthur was one shining light for Howard as a leader in 12 years. And it came very early in his prime ministership. He'd only been prime minister for a very short time when Port Arthur happened. And he seized the reins, he knew what he had to do, and he did it. He didn't exploit it. Uh, he took on conservative constituents, largely National Party constituents. He knew that the cities were broadly with him, but he did have to manage Queensland, uh, very conservative, you know, deeply conservative government. Western Australia was another serious, serious problem for him, and the National Party within his own ranks was a serious problem for him, although uh, Tim Fisher, to his eternal credit, stood up uh, against the, the gun lobby as well and uh, stared down his own constituents and when he and Howard went to Gympie for one meeting uh, Fisher had to confront his own effigy uh, hanging from a wall. These were pretty nasty moments and, uh, and so Howard's leadership, uh, Howard, it's not, I'm not punning here, but Howard did stand tall uh, 
in that moment. And, uh, and yet, very soon after that, Pauline Hanson, just, just as the gun law reforms were actually finally being instituted, 700,000 guns, I think, were destroyed. And just as, those, just as the last stage of those gun laws were, were being pushed through the parliament, Pauline Hanson rose. It took her six months to write it. But Pauline Hanson rose to make her maiden speech and, talk, and, and talked about, you know, the Asian threat, like as if she talked of Asians flooding Australia. There are something like 40 Asian countries and they are so diverse. Uh, some of them are Muslim, some of them are Buddhist, some of them are communist. Uh, vastly different cultures. But for her, they were just one. Does, this, just one does this make you angry? Do you get angry at this? I get deeply frustrated that um, that that uh, we have been so, we have we have been so poorly served by the kind of leadership required to keep us broadly as a decent kind of centrist society, at times centre right, at times centre left, but fundamentally a kind of centred society, a society straddling the political middle and moving out towards the edges, but fundamentally in the middle, and a centred society. Uh, and, and our multicultural system, which had really only begun to develop post-war, post-World War II, <coughs> we had somehow managed to forge a multicultural society which was broadly accepting. And, and here was this discordant element, this ugly element, that was playing to our dark side and taking us back again, taking us back in a way, figuratively, to before that, that one bright spot in 1967 when we voted to give powers to the Commonwealth in relation to Aboriginal Australians and where Aboriginal Australians, for the first time really, were actually allowed to join the census. And, uh, and Hanson, and, and Howard knew Hanson was coming because she'd actually been expelled from the Liberal Party as their candidate in the seat of Oxley in Queensland in the 96 election and stood as an independent and got the biggest swing in the country. So Howard knew, knew what she was, he knew what her game was, he knew the kinds of stuff that was capable of coming out of her mouth. He was, could, have, could and should have been prepared for it, but he, he essentially allowed it. He didn't challenge it. He didn't challenge it like even some others in his own party did. What should he have done to put the race card back well, on the Well, I can't remember a single time where he actually addressed the issue of racism. There it was, staring him in the face as our national leader. That was a real opportunity for him. It wasn't just an opportunity. It was a duty in terms of, you know, leaders are supposed to unite. They're not supposed to divide, but I think his... His, I can't think of a more divisive government. People have said, what about Billy Hughes? Well, maybe. Long way back. Certainly in my lifetime, I can't think of a more divisive Prime Minister. And, uh, and you know, I, I did give him credit on the gun laws, and I'd, I'd, I'd love to have had other things to give him credit for. I don't give him credit for the way he handled the WIC debate on native title, which was sort of phase two of Mabo, where he did his level best to undo practically everything that Keating had achieved with the Mabo legislation. I didn't like the way he handled the Stolen Generations report that had been commissioned under Keating. Um, the, his incapacity to actually offer a national apology and the way he, the way he not only participated in but exploited the, the so-called culture wars. I didn't like the way 
He ran the waterfront reform process How, with the guard dogs he and was balaclavas. Prime, he was Prime Minister for 13 of the... 12. Fifth, 12 of the 15 years you were at 730? Well, his, his, his 12 years almost completely paralleled the first 12 years so how, of, of the National 730 Report. How do you, in an unbiased way, interview him the hundreds of times you must have interviewed him I, well, without well, if you, letting if that you want frustration to, If you want to you sit down with have. me for the hundred interviews, I'll take you through them um, and see if you can pick the points where I've stepped over a line. I don't think I did. Uh, some of them were pretty willing, but... Um, but I was, all I was doing was attempting to keep him honest and keep mm. the process honest. Uh, because, because one of the things that has changed in my time as a journalist has been the overtraining of politicians uh, in the art of not answering questions and in the art of taking over interviews to get their boring bloody messages repetitively across. What... What do we do? What do we do in order to avoid or to solve the problem of the lack of leadership? Well, it's not just a lack of political leadership. I think the media has to take its own share of the responsibility, and we all do in the end. We all do in the end. I mean, I, I was speaking at a, a journalist forum in Sydney last night, and, uh, and it, was about, it was around the Walkley Foundation and the Walkley Awards, which are like... Our Walkley Awards in Australia are like the Pulitzer Prize in America. It's about rewarding the best journalism of any given year. But the point I was making is that, um, is that it's, great, it's great to applaud the best of our journalism and to recognise it. In fact, it's incredibly important to recognise where quality shines through, but at the same time to acknowledge our failures. And our failures are substantial in the, in the industry of journalism. It's not so much the individual journalists, or we, we have to take our share of that as well, but collectively the industry has failed, as has the political system. And we are seeing the manifestations of that. The more extreme manifestation is Donald Trump in America. A more extreme example is Brexit in Britain and the complete bloody mess that's developed there. But there are other examples here, you know. I mean, I, I honestly think, um, and I would like to believe that I would say the same thing about a Labor government if it was displaying the kinds of stuff that we have seen from this. I think this government has lost its right to govern. I don't think it's any more just... I don't think it's any more a case of, oh, the government's tired, or they've failed us on this, or they've failed us on that. I think they have fundamentally failed in their commission to govern. Full stop. Kerry O'Brien, our time is up. The book you didn't is get on very far. The book is on sale <laughs> in the bookshop. I hope you enjoyed listening to this conversation from the 2019 Newcastle Writers Festival. Save the date for next year's festival, April 3 to 5, and follow us on Facebook for regular updates.